Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This episode of Your Torah is dedicated by Louise and David Wolfson. This is Dina Brower. I live in London and I'm in my final year of studies for rabbinic ordination at Yeshivat Maharat in New York. I want to introduce you to Masechet Peah, which is the second book in the order of Zra'im, which means seeds. The word Peah simply means corner, and the context here is the corner of one's field. As the name suggests, Peah covers laws that are all about fields, and so it fits really well in the order of seeds. In particular, this Masechet covers five types of gifts the farmer is obligated to give to the poor. Before I tell you about these gifts, I want to set the context for this Masechet. Unlike foragers who ate what they could find or kill, and who might have had some more and some less plentiful days, the move to agriculture enabled people to produce more food overall and more consistently, but it also introduced significant economic differences between individuals. Landowners, generally males heading large families, that worked in the fields, did well. Those without access to land, generally widows, orphans, and strangers, were synonymous with the poor. In fact, Yuval Noah Harari, an Israeli historian and author of the international bestseller Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, calls the agricultural revolution history's biggest fraud. Against this backdrop, we might better appreciate the laws and values in the order of Zra'im in general, and Masachet Peah in particular. So now, let's see what are the five gifts a farmer has to give to the poor. The first is Peah, from which the book takes its name, and it is literally about not cutting corners. When harvesting his field, a farmer is commanded to leave the far corner of his field untouched, so that the poor can collect the produce. The second is leket, gleanings. These are stalks of grain that fall from the farmer's hand or sickle in the process of harvesting and should be left behind. In the context of grape harvest, the equivalent gift is called parrot, individual grapes that fall off the cluster being picked and are left for the poor. The third is shikha, sheaves that are forgotten in the field while their harvest is being brought to the threshing floor, or other produce, even if it's still attached to the ground, that is overlooked by the harvesters. The fourth is olelot. These are immature clusters of grapes that are left behind. The fifth is ma'aser ani, the tithe given to the poor, which is mandatory on every third and sixth year of the seven-year agricultural cycle that culminates in a sabbatical year. Pea is comprised of eight chapters, and unlike some other Masechtot, it sticks with its topic and does not include any off-topic material. Interestingly, because it has to do with mitzvot and laws that have to do with the land, and sometimes very specific to the land of Israel, there is only a Jerusalem Um, edition of Talmud that deals with the laws of Peah, but not a Babylonian edition. 
The first four chapters deal with the laws of Pea, the obligation to leave the corner of one's field unharvested. And the Mishnah asks, what types of produce does Pea apply to? What about orchards? What is the minimum size corner that one has to leave? Is there a minimum size field to which Pea applies? What if a stream crosses your field? Is your field now considered like two separate fields? We learn that Pea applies to produce from the ground, grown for human consumption, that is generally stored throughout the year. The sages extended the obligation to legumes as well as eight varieties of fruit trees. Each field should have a Pea, its own uncut corner. The very first Mishnah teaches that the Torah does not specify a minimum amount for Pea. The Mishnah that follows it immediately sets a minimum of 1 60th, but goes on to elaborate that in determining the size of the unharvested corner, one must consider the size of the field, the number of local poor people, and the crop yield. And so, if you have a very small field, you might have to leave a corner that is greater than 1 60th, as you have to ensure that the poor can harvest a quantity that is useful. If it is too little, it will not warrant the effort to harvest. Chapter 4 introduces safeguards. The Mishnah very pragmatically realizes that as the hungry compete with each other to collect produce, they might cause injury to each other. Therefore, they are not allowed to harvest the produce with a scythe or use a spade to uproot it. And although it is the poor who have to harvest from the corner of the field, and the owner is not allowed to harvest it and then distribute it to the poor himself, the Mishnah makes an exception to protect the poor when it comes to vineyards and to date palms, which require climbing up to reach the fruit, and again, can lead to accidents. It also suggests set times for the poor to come collect their gifts in the field, morning, noon, and late afternoon. The topic of Leket, the dropped stalks, is introduced at the very end of the fourth chapter, and the fifth covers questions such as, can one irrigate their field before the poor have collected the leket, the dropped stalks? What happens if a landowner, in his travels, finds himself in need to collect leket to feed himself? Is he considered momentarily poor, or does he have to pay the leket back on his return? We then move on to shikha, the forgotten sheaves. The sixth chapter considers... What is a negligible amount that the farmer has dropped and will not bother picking up? And how do we define forgotten sheaves? Here we find a difference of opinion between the school of Hillel and that of Shammai. Hillel maintains that as much as two sheaves are shikha, but not three, three forgotten sheaves would remain the owners. Likewise, two single grapes are parrot, and two ears of grain are leket, but three would be for the owner to pick up. Shammai, however, maintains that as much as three dropped stalks, or forgotten sheaves, are left for the poor, but four would remain the farmer's property. The difference in their opinion is rooted in the biblical verse they identify as the basis for the commandment, 
Hillel uses a verse in Leviticus that names two categories of people. You will leave it to the poor and the stranger, and therefore understands that the minimum is two. While Shammai relies on the verse from Deuteronomy that states, it shall be for the stranger, orphan, and widow, naming three categories of people, and therefore he learns three is a minimum. The seventh chapter deals with laws that apply to olive trees and with gifts that are specific to the vineyard. Parrot, the individual grape that falls away while cutting the cluster, and olelot, the clusters of grapes that are not fully formed and are left behind for the poor. Here the Mishnah cautions, a farmer who leaves a basket under the vine at the time that he harvests the grapes in order to catch any loose grapes that might roll away, that person is stealing from the poor. The eighth and final chapter deals with Maaser Ani, the tithe for the poor, which is the last of the five gifts. In the third and in the sixth year of the seven-year agricultural cycle, 10% of one's produce is gifted to the poor. The Mishnah asks, what is the minimum one must give to an individual poor? How poor does one have to be to qualify as poor? What if one doesn't have food but owns other possessions? We learn that the minimum you have to give is enough for two meals. A person who has enough for two meals doesn't qualify to eat at the soup kitchen. And one who has enough to eat for two weeks should not accept charity funds. However, one is not required to sell his home or clothes before accepting any of these agricultural gifts. The chapter concludes by expressing the values that underpin these laws. When giving to the poor, give generously, but be loath to avail yourself of charity. What strikes me about Peah, and I think this is true for much of the order of Zraim, is how rather than painting a picture-perfect, idyllic setting for life in the Holy Land, the Mishnah consciously addresses the inequalities resulting from life in an agricultural society and the flawed nature of human beings. Within these laws, we find the foundation to systematically address the inequality between the haves and the have-nots, the prosperous landowners and the destitute. I find in the detail of the laws an incredible sense of empathy for those who are destitute. It takes into account that some will be nursing mothers and require a nourishing meal early in the day. Some will be youths who do not wake up and get going before midday and others elderly and move at a slower pace and therefore stipulates three time slots for harvesting pea so that no matter who the poor is, they'll have an opportunity to collect produce in the field at a time that suits their needs. It understands the stress endured by those who do not know whence their next meal will come, and that, is, and that this uncertainty and vulnerability might bring to the fore human flaws and faults. We see this even today, when there's shoving and greediness that leads to chaos and too often serious injuries in aid distribution lines following natural disasters or in war zones. I now want to return to the start of this Masachet and take an in-depth look at the first Mishnah.
This Mishnah has particular resonance for me, and it is likely to be one of the most familiar, because an extended version of it appears in the morning prayers. It follows Birkata Torah, the blessing for the study of Torah that we recite, or ideally should recite, every morning, with the function to enable us immediately to fulfill the mitzvah of Torah study. It begins with the words, Elu devarim she'ein lahem shi'ur. These are the things that have no measure, meaning mitzvot that have no set minimum or maximum amount, according to the Torah, and one can fulfill with anything. Hape'ah, the corner of the field, vehabikurim, the first fruits brought to the temple, vehare'ayon, the sacrifice brought to the temple on pilgrimage festivals, ugmilut chasadim, acts of kindness, vetalmud Torah, and the study of Torah. It then goes on to express another category. Elu devarim she'adam ochel perotehem ba'olam hazeh. These are things, the fruits of which a person enjoys in this world, ve'hakeren kayemet lo le'olam haba, while the principle remains to be enjoyed in the world to come. And the list includes kibud av honoring one's parents, ugmilut chasadim, acts of kindness, Vehavat shalom benadam lachavero, and bringing peace between a person and their fellow. Vetalmud Torah keneged kulam, but the study of Torah is equal to them all. I want to focus on the message of the very last sentence. On the surface, it seems to be saying that Torah study outweighs all the other mitzvot the Mishnah enumerated. But to read it this way that the theoretical trumps the practical, is problematic. Could it really be that the academic study of the laws of Pea, for example, outweighs its practical application? That the student hunched over the book in a Bet Midrash eclipses the hardworking farmer who breeds life into these laws by applying them to the betterment of society? How can this be? I would definitely... I would therefore like to suggest a different meaning to the words Vetalmud Torah keneged kulam. It is not a statement that pits Torah study against practice, but rather one that qualifies valuable Torah as the kind that leads to practice. Torah study does not translate into making the world a fairer place, is self-indulgent. The kind of Torah study that is priceless is one that is keneged kulam, one that faces all. In other words, an outward-facing Torah study. Before studying the laws of Pea, in which the Torah seeks to redress economic and social imbalance, the first Mishnah asserts that the whole purpose of Torah study is to improve our imperfect world and to strive for justice and compassion. It reminds us that Torah study must always be keneged kulam. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying Your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.